1 Thessalonians 5, if you have a Bible. If you don't, there's a, one in the chair in front of you, and it's on page 988. And um, as I thought about the text today, which the bishop, the Archbishop of the Cape, assigned to me, and uh, <laughs> said that I would be preaching from, uh, you know, sometimes it's good. You don't even have to pray what to preach. If the Holy Spirit just tells Rob what I'm supposed to preach. And so th this is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing. Uh, and as I, I looked at this text, you know, when you, when you look at verses 12 to 28 in your Bible, obviously, A, it's a lot of ground to cover, and that's always difficult for me to get through. Uh, number two, it looks like there's just a bunch of unconnected uh, in admonishments and encouragements that Paul is giving, but I hope by the end of the message you'll see it's, it's a little bit uh, more compact than that. Uh, we, we say how to have a happy family, and maybe you're thinking of your immediate family and your household, uh, but that's not the family I'm really talking about, though there are parallel principles. But what I'm really talking about is the gathering here together at Osterville Baptist Church. I'm talking about the family uh, of, of uh, God. It was years ago when radio Bible teacher M.R. DeHaan wrote, the closest thing to heaven on earth is a happy family. And the closest thing to hell on earth is an unhappy family. Now, again, he's talking about your, your household. Uh, but I think it also, by application, uh, can be applied to the church family. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, uh, what a wonderful testimony that was to see it pictured in baptism. But at that split second, you became a member of the family of God. Uh, scriptures talk about the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. They're all the speaking of the same thing, that one body that the Holy Spirit has been going throughout the quarries of humanity and bringing dead stones into living stones, and they get added to that building called the family of God. It started on the day of Pentecost, and as I understand it, it will go until the time of the rapture of the church. So that is the universal body of Christ. That's the family of God. But then it is manifested locally in what you and I would call local churches all over the world, like Osterville Baptist Church. So the minute you're saved, you become a member of the family of God, the church. But then as you grow and develop in your Christian life, you hear about the local assembly, and you hear about baptism, and you hear about communion, you hear about the, Lord, uh, uh, the membership in the local church, and then you become a member of that local family. Years ago, they used to talk about the, uh, and, and I haven't heard it so much recently, uh, but 40, 50 years ago, we used to talk about the visible church and the invisible church. How many of you ever heard of that expression, the visible? And Okay, quite a few of you. You're seven years old, too. So that uh, <laughs> the idea was the visible church is what, you know, you look around. But the invisible, kind of you're walking down the street, and you can't tell by looking at a person whether they're a member of the church or not. And so they called it the invisible church. And so there's this, there, I understand it's a true story uh, where, where the man came to the pastor and he said he wanted to sing in the choir and this was years ago and the pastor says, well, we have a requirement here and 
to do things like that, you gotta be a member of the church. He says, I don't think you belong here. He says, where do you have your, your church membership? And the gentleman says, well, I don't, I don't believe, I, I, I just don't believe and I don't belong to any local church. I belong to the invisible church. And the pastor said, then I suggest you join the invisible choir. That might be the, uh, the answer for that. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 28, he's talking here uh, about the local church, about you and me today. And as I looked at this passage uh, that Rob asked me to teach on, I think the emphasis obviously is on the local church, but it has to do with the various relationships you and I have as members of that local church. It's a very unhealthy thing when Christians, believers, neglect the local church. It's very unhealthy. It's a right thing when you become part of a local church. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I'm not going to ask you how many are members, how many of you aren't members. But if you know the Lord and you want to grow and be the Christian God wants you to be, to me, my understanding, just personally, is the local church is a vital part of that. I've never met, personally, I've never met what I would call a, a, a real fruit-bearing, serving Christian who isn't a member of a local church. Now, they may be out there, they may be, I'm just saying I've never met one. Because God established the local church as the instrument through which you and I would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we become members? And what a great day to speak on that with membership today and membership classes tomorrow for you to seek it out. This is where the Lord had of you. Because we're family and we're connected to each other. You know that no family is perfect. We all know that. We know that no local church is perfect. And please, for heaven's sake, if you ever find the perfect local church, you know where I'm going, don't you? Please don't join it. You'll ruin it the minute you do. So if there's the perfect church, stay away. No family's perfect without the family unit. And uh, that's... What you can just look in your own immediate family, just think how your family would suffer if you weren't all together as a family unit. So four things to understand. Let me move quickly here now. First of all, understand your relationship to the ministers. Verses 12 and 13. Now I'm using this word ministers in the more technical sense when in reality every person here, the youngest to the oldest, men, women, brand new Christians, mature believers, every person here is a minister. If we take that word in the sense of uh, the Greek word diakonos, every person is a deacon. Now you have an official title given to some people here called deacons. But every person really is a deacon, every person's a servant, every person is a minister. But I am using this in a more, in a more technical sense as to the leadership of the family. Without leadership, you and I know that a family falls apart. The father is the head of the home while the mother stands with him in love and cooperation. The children are to obey their parents. That's the ideal. I mean, just think about any family you want to. If every father was loved his wife with that sacrificial, spontaneous, sanctifying love, if every wife just honored and revered her husband 
And if parents raised their children and nurtured and and if children obeyed their parents and honored them, what a blessed, happy home that would be. Uh, The same is true in the local church. Now we have two responsibilities to our ministers in this text. It's in verses 12 and 13. Let me read them as these verses are on the screen for you. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem the very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now you notice the two things he tells us to do in my relationship, your relationship to the ministers, is that we are to respect them and then he uses the word in verse 3, esteem or revere them. Now you notice in verse 12 there are three participles that give you the reason as to why you are to respect the leadership. One, they are those who labor among you. Dare I say that only those in spiritual leadership really understand that. When, when Rob said a needed vacation, I don't know if you picked that up. I did. And I understand that. When, when holidays come and you're preaching, preparing, what the congregation doesn't know is what's happening behind the scenes. The 2 a.m. phone calls. The family falling apart. The teenagers on drugs. That's what you don't hear about during the, during the week. They, they labor among you. Yet it says they are over you, verse 12, in the Lord, and they admonish you. So if we speak of pastors, elders, deacons, those in spiritual leadership, as our leaders know that they are over you in the Lord, and Hebrew says they keep watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. It's a very dangerous thing when a church family takes their spiritual leaders for granted, fails to pray for them, work with them, encourage them, and submit to their leadership. Follow your leaders as your leaders are following Christ. Secondly, he says to esteem or to revere them in verse 13. And we do that because of their labors of love and their faithfulness to God's call. On a personal note, I've gotten to know your church leaders, some better than others, but I've gotten to know them over the last few years. And I can tell you this, they are worthy of our respect, reverence, and esteem. They pray together, they learn from one another's counsel, they have your interest at heart, and they have God's glory as their supreme passion. Now, as a result of that, notice the end of verse 13 where he says, be at peace among yourselves. Warren Wearsby writes this, the result of the church family following the spiritual leaders will be peace and harmony in the church. Now, that's what we want, a happy family, except now we're talking about the family of God. That's how you have a happy family in following these biblical admonitions. There's a lot more we could say, but we don't have time. Let's go to your second relationship you need to understand, and that is understanding your relationship to the members. Understanding your relationship to the, uh, to the members. In this portion of scripture, the members of the church are expected to be the ministers to the needs of other people in the church. Those next to you, those behind you, and those who are members of this church. You are their ministers in the most general sense. You're serving the membership. You say, well, I thought that was the job of the pastor. No, no, he ministers. But his job is not to minister to the whole flock in that sense. He's not responsible for that. He's got one primary responsibility, and I charge every elder and deacon here to protect him with this one responsibility. 
God gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who are to what? Equip the body for what reason? To do the work of the ministry for what result? For the edifying of the body of Christ. Rob has one primary, he has other, he has one primary responsibility. And I'll tell you this, uh, and you know my, what I think of Rob. When I sit there and I sit under this young man's teaching, the first thing that always comes to mind, this young man's done his homework. He has worked hours on that text. He's developed that text. And it's because you allow him to do that. It takes time. And so the, his job is to feed you. And you get fed every time he steps uh, to the pulpit, as you well know. So that's his job, and it's your responsibility, what? To care for one another uh, in the body of Christ. Some of you may be sitting there and said, I've never had the pastor visit my home. Then praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> that means no one died. That means no one just, got, uh, just had a heart attack and is dying in the hospital. That means it's not a tragedy. If you're complaining because your pastor has to visit, you say, praise the Lord. Boy, am I glad he's never visited my home. Now, I'm taking that a little far, you understand, but you get the drift of what I'm trying to say. It's your responsibility to care for one another. That's really where I think a lot of times Sunday school groups, small groups, adult studies, women's Bible studies can really help out in this area. Now, there are members with special needs. Have you ever noticed that? Now, just listen to what he says. Verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all, see that none repays anyone evil for evil, seek to do good to one another and, uh, and to everyone. It might have been 40 years ago. 30, 40, I don't know. A person came up to me, new member of the church, where I was serving as pastor. And he said, you know, pastor, I really don't know how to say this, but... Um, he let me, just let it out, we'll clean it up afterwards. He says, I've only, we've only been members here, you know, X number of times, short time. He says, you've really got a lot of strange people in this church. <laughs> I mean, they are, there are some real oddballs. He says, why is that? And I said in the words of another, wherever there's light, there are bugs. Did you ever notice that? Just turn the light out some July night on your porch. The bugs just, listen, we're shining the light, right? Now, I don't mean to call you a bug, but <laughs> let me tell you as a pastor, there are a lot of bugs, okay? And sometimes, trust me, sometimes you dread to see them coming toward you, okay? And that's where we need this instruction, uh, uh, the instruction here. Now, he mentions three in particular, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. The idle is translated unruly in most other translations, or disorderly. It's the Greek word of a military, uh, that you're marching in formation, anyone that's been in the military knows what I'm talking about, and you had to keep in step with one another. You couldn't have one member stepping out of step. Remember the, uh, sh the, move, uh, the uh, TV show Gomer Pyle? And Gomer Pyle always started out that way. They're marching, but Gomer could never keep in step. And he had the sergeant, I forget his name now, he had a little baton and he'd whack him on the helmet. Well, that's reality. That's what happened when you got out of step in the military. 
The DI was there, and he whacked you on the helmet. I mean, get in line, get in step. You're not a lone ranger. You're not doing your own thing. You fall in line with, 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 with the platoon here. Now, we're all individuals. And we have our own individual thoughts and backgrounds, experiences, but God wants us to fall in line. You understand what I'm saying? I don't mean every job, every title. I'm not talking about putting you in a little brown box. But I'm just saying in general behavior, in moral principles of life, uh, we're not to get out of line. The faint-hearted, literally the Greek word means little soul. They're, they're the quitters in the church. They're normally pessimistic. And when things get tough, they usually drop out. Then there's the third he calls the weak. They're just plain immature believers who constantly, constantly need reassured and helped. So how do you minister to these people? Because I guarantee, I don't know who they are, but I guarantee you they're here. Now, notice secondly, members needing special care. Let me read verse 14 again. We urge you, brothers, admonish the auto, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Now, notice the three different words he uses for each one of the different categories. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, support the weak. But then he says, be patient with every one of them. Now, let me try to illustrate it this way. I, I, I want you to just to look at my arm for a minute. I want you to picture up here these three groups are here. Okay? So with the first group, the unruly, it says, admonish him. Here's what I might do with my arm. I might point my finger at him and say, stop that. Stop doing that. You need an attitude adjustment. Ever do that to your children? You're admonishing them. Stop that. It's the Greek, you know the Greek word, it's nutheo, from which we get nuthetic counseling. It means to change your course of behavior and shift to another way of doing things, what you ought to be doing. Stop it. Now, with the second group here, with, with the faint-hearted, with this same arm, what I might do is go up to that faint-hearted one, and I might put my arm around them or on their shoulder. Just came to me 30 years ago. I remember visiting one of our members. This is one, of, uh, she was a typical example here of the faint-hearted. And she was getting some mental health, uh, mental therapy help in the hospital. And I remember her, there was one of the most pathetic looks, and she just looked and she said, oh, Pastor, I'm so lonely. I'm just all alone. So hard. Now, there's people like that. And I wasn't using a cliche, but I remember I put my hand on her shoulder. With the other hand, I took her chin. She was looking down, and I had her look at me right in the eye. I said, you're never alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. Now, you can say that glibly, but it's the truth. It's the greatest truth you can know if you feel all alone. David Livingston said that's what kept him in Africa all those years, was knowing the presence of God in his life. You're not alone. And so you're gentle with them. Then there's the weak. What are you going to do with the weak? That's one of the reasons I don't always give a public invitation. You know why? I, I did it 50 years ago. Because the same people came forward every Sunday. But they had a sensitive heart. But it just got kind of embarrassing. And here they come again. But they had a sensitive heart. But they were weak. They were just always, always needing help. Always needing 
Well, you just get tired of that. Now, what am I going to do with the week? I'm going to go up here, same arm, I'm going to go, but this time I'm going to put my arm around the waist. Now I want you to picture in your mind the football field, the soccer field, the basketball court. The person's just sprained his ankle, uh, twisted his knee. What are you going to do? You're going to take that left arm, what are you going to do? You're going to put it up over yours, you're going to put your arm under there, and you're going to help him get off the field. I'm with you. I'm going to be there for you. That gets old. It gets, because what you want to say, and I've done it, and I've done it wrongly, what you want to say is what? Why don't you grow up? Get with it. Paul says, no, don't do that. Be and notice how he ends us all, how we need them. Notice how he ends us in verse 14. Be patient with them all. You see, he puts that in there because we need patience with these people. We can become very... I can become very impatient. And so these are members that needing special care. Verse 15 tells us that our motive is always seeking the good of the other, never acting with malice or revenge no matter what they've done. Notice what he says. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. For the unruly, the faint heart of the weak, we are only to do them good. And doing them good is pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they need you sometimes to carry them to the sidelines and to be with them. Now, let's go to the third one, understanding your relationship to the master. Now, I hope you're starting to see that this isn't just a bunch of commands thrown together. Understand your ministers, your relationship to your ministers, 12 and 13. Understand, as a member, your relationship to the, uh, to the other members. You see that in verses 14 and 15. Now we're going to go and see your relationship to the Lord, to your master. Notice he says, verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Dare I say that each one of those really deserves, Rob, are you listening to this tape? Every one of them deserves an individual message. I mean, they're so powerful here. And we know them so well, it's just so easy to glibly, yeah, rejoice, always pray without ceasing, and everything you find is the will of God and Christ Jesus concerning you. We know it. And we just go over it. Rejoice always. Joy is the result of a person who has the mind of Christ. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances. I'm going to say it again. Amen. Joy has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with your relationship to the Holy Spirit of God. Indeed, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, what? Joy, peace, etc. Right. It's the result of my relationship. It's the result of not walking by the flesh, but what? Walking by the Spirit. It's the result of don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we all know and have experienced to some degree the painful experiences of life. Death. Disease. Disappointment. Disillusionment. Betrayal. Jesus talked about this on the night of his betrayal when in John 16 he talked about the relationship of pain and joy. And you mothers especially will appreciate this passage more than us men. 
But in verses 21 and 22, notice what he says, John 16. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembered the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world. You have now sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. The same baby that was in your womb and caused you such horrific pain in giving birth to that child. The same baby is the same baby you hold to your breast that brings you joy, and you almost immediately forget the pain. And when you talk in years after that, and you remember that time, I've never heard a mother talk about the pain. I've heard her talk about the joy. The principle is this. God brings joy into our lives, not by substitution. That's the world's way. That's the carnal way. It's not by substitution. It's by transformation. God does not substitute something else to relieve the mother's pain. Instead, he uses what is there, but he transforms it. And he did not say that the mother's sorrow pain was replaced by joy, but that the sorrow was transformed into joy. And then he reminds the disciples in verse 22 that they're going to experience great sorrow. And yet the very thing that produces the sorrow... Get this principle. The very thing that produced the sorrow, namely the passion and suffering of Christ, is the very thing that's going to bring the joy. It's a transformation that takes place. As we sang earlier, joy comes in the morning. So true. That's true for you too, if you know the Lord. And if you come today with a heavy heart, I'm sorry. You have some pain there that nobody knows about around you. But joy comes in the morning. God will transform that pain into joy. And you can have the joy even in the midst of it because it's not based upon what has happened. It's based upon your present relationship with the Spirit of God. Boy, does that need amplified, right? We don't have time. Second relationship to the master. He says, pray without ceasing. Verse 17. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? First, it means there is a spirit of dependence that should permeate all we do. Why is the reason you pray? Because you're dependent. Right? You're dependent. Why is it that you go days without praying? Because you don't feel that you need to depend. You feel you've got things under control. We pray because there's a spirit of dependence. Secondly, Paul is in mind praying repeatedly and often in Romans 1.9. He said, for God, whom I serve in my spirit of the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Paul prayed about a lot of things. But he says, I kept praying for these believers in Rome over and over and over again. Thirdly, I think praying without ceasing means not giving up on prayer. Men ought always to pray and what? Not to faint. That's Jesus' words. Many parables, the persistent widow. Don't give up. Did you ever give up? 
I don't know about you, I keep a prayer list. I keep a prayer journal. I have a list of things I pray for every day. I got them written down every day. Boom, boom, boom. I have other things called a temporary list. You come to me and say, my husband's having surgery Tuesday morning at nine. That goes on my temporary list. Surgery's over, he goes off the list. I've got others that are daily. Monday, there's certain countries, certain parts of the world I pray for. Certain things I pray for on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And sometimes when you're praying every day for something, and God doesn't answer prayer, it's easy to what? Give up. True confession time. Nephew, niece. Uh, more like sons and daughters in our families. Marriage went on the rocks. Divorce. Divorce is filed. They live in the state of South Carolina. State rule to make sure you don't enter into this major decision in a hasty way. You have to wait a year before you can apply for the divorce. You can get separation. You got to wait for a year. If anyone had a biblical reason from my point of view, which I may be wrong, but if anyone had biblical justification, my niece by marriage did. I counseled her toward that. I can still remember on different occasions her saying to me, sobbing, Uncle Harry, I will not, I will not let him go. And I think, boy, you're going to put yourself and those kids through a lot of suffering. I prayed every day for, let's just say, around, give or take, two years. And one day, guess what? I got tired. The year was up. The divorce was going to be finalized. I quit. That next day, I got the call of my life. Uncle Harry, God has done a miracle. Just out of nowhere, she asked him if he'd go with her to a marriage counseling seminar up in Charleston. And the Holy Spirit did what no one else could do. If you'd see them now, you'd think they're the happiest family in all the world, living for Christ, serving the Lord, four great kids. There's a principle there. Don't always listen to Uncle Harry. <laughs> but the principle to me was this. Why, I've asked myself, why didn't God allow me to see the joy of answered prayer with them still on the list? Why did I take them off the list? I think it was just an instruction from the Lord to say, keep on keeping on. Even when you think there's no hope. Hey, got anyone like that? Hmm? Got a grandfather? Got, got a home like that? Got, children, got someone on drugs? Got someone so far from God? Got a heavy burden you're praying for? You stop praying for? This time, listen to Uncle Harry. Go on back. Put him on the prayer list. And keep on praying. Oh, I wish I could say more. Third, give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God. You know, every command here, it seems, gets tougher. 
The spirit-filled person will give thanks for all things at all times. God's going to bring a hard trial, a test into my life unexpectedly. And you'll be challenged to give thanks in the midst of the battle when it's most difficult. When you get that news, boy, the heart attack. The kid's locked up. The marriage is on the rocks. The test came back bad. He doesn't say be thankful. He says give thanks. Because thankful is a word of the emotions. It's hard to be thankful when you just told the one you love the most on that long to live. But I can give thanks by an act of the will. Lord, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't want it. I don't like it. There's nothing about this I like. But you are sovereign, and I give you thanks because you know what you're doing. Not easy, not even possible in your own strength, but the response of a spirit-filled life. Okay, one last point here. Understand your relationship to the, to the ministers, the members, the master. Now the relationship to the message. I'm going to try to really run through this, because not only for your sake, but for those who are watching the nursery. Okay. <laughs> By the way, best thing you can ever do, put the preacher in the nursery once a year. He'll shorten his message by 10 minutes, probably. May, he, he may give you a 10-minute homily the next Sunday. Who knows? Okay, understand your relationship to the message. Now, notice how he... Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, that's all part of my relationship to the message. Don't quench the spirit. The word quench pictures the Holy Spirit as fire. Chuck Swindoll captured this when he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit entitled Flying Closer to the Flame. We even used to speak of being what? On fire for Christ. Let me say four things very quickly. First, quenching the Spirit is to reject the supernatural work of the Spirit. Now, it's not so important, although you've got to hear the Word of God, if you're going to, you've got to hear my voice. But what I'm saying right now, through this message, there may be some things you're saying, I'm not certain. It's, but listen, when there's a small, quiet voice of the Holy Spirit and you're yielded to God and the Holy, that small, quiet voice is kind of, it's almost like just you and me in the room. You've been there, haven't you? That's the voice you want to follow. Follow the promptings. And when you don't, that's called quenching the Holy Spirit. And when you quench the Holy Spirit, you're putting out the fire that gives you the passion, power, and purity the Spirit of God wants to be. Second, 1 Timothy 1, 6, Paul told Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. I quench the Spirit when I do not exercise my spiritual gift that God's given me. You know what your gift is? Are you serving the Lord? What's your ministry? What are you doing? When I quench, and, and that, that, that gift of God it just goes into, you know, he says, fan it with a flame. Thirdly, quenching the spirit means shutting down your emotions when joyful spiritual expressions are called for. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. What am I saying here? And this can really get taken out of context. This can really be taken to abuse. Sometimes there's, a, there's an expression that the Spirit of God puts in you that you want to say, even in a service. Praise the Lord. 
Now, I used to have a person that used to say, praise the Lord, almost every five minutes at a message. People are going to hell. Praise the Lord. I mean, he'd say it at the most, you know, inappropriate times. That's the abuse. But sometimes you just want to say hallelujah, don't you? Even if you are a Baptist. I mean, sometimes you want to say praise the Lord. Sometimes, do you ever notice people out here raising their hands? What are they doing? They're, they're what? They're expressing, it's kind of, did you ever do it? No, you have some, you have two Baptists. Listen, there's, there's something about, I never did for 40 years. And then I got alone in my basement with a mirror and I was playing some Brooklyn Tabernacle music. I said, I wonder what they do. And I lifted my hands up and I looked in the mirror and I thought, I don't do it like they do. I'm very self-conscious. You know the true confession, number two. I want to raise my hands. Truth, I'm thinking, I wonder what others will think of me. Huh? You say, that's dumb. I know, I didn't say I was smart. (laughs) I'm just saying, there's a certain restraint, maybe because of all the years I was raised, when that meant something else, which then we could talk about abuses, which we own because we don't have time. Don't, Don't quench the spirit when he's not only ministering your intellect and your will, but your emotions. But make sure he's the one leading and guiding you. Fourth, quenching the Spirit means resisting the convicting ministry of the Spirit when I turn from my sins as he seeks to produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life. What's all that mean? It means you're sitting there and God points out like, you know, you've done that, that's not good. You got this attitude, you need to change it. When those promptings come, submit to him. We used to sing, remember years ago, revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. May thy soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory, hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. What a great prayer, right? Oh Lord, revive us, revive me. Revive me. Second, don't reject the word of God. This is a long message. But I'm gonna be done in five minutes. Did I just say that? Okay, do not despise prophecies. I'm saying don't reject the word of God. The prophetic gift was the ability to receive, communicate, direct revelation from God. Keep in mind the New Testament isn't complete for another 50 years. So they didn't come together and say open to the book of, uh, uh, of 1 John because it hadn't been written yet. So therefore, as we learned in 1 Corinthians 14 a year ago, not that I expect you to remember because I preached the message and I can't remember much of it, but during a service, a person might stand up and give a prophetic utterance from the Lord. The Holy Spirit of God gave him direct revelation. The New Testament wasn't complete yet. And he would give an utterance. Somebody else might speak in a tongue and and give a message in another foreign language they hadn't learned. And then somebody might stand up and say, you know, what that brother said isn't right. He had the gift of the discerning of spirits. Now, that was the early church. We don't do that today because we don't have to do that today. But I think what Paul is saying here is that don't reject the word of God. That would be the application by us. You see, this could open up the possibility of a false someone standing up and saying, the Holy Spirit told me to say this, and then he says something, but it's not true. So that leads us to the last point, verse 21. Do be discerning with all messages. Test everything. Boys, oh, is that needed today? Some of you are on that internet all the time. Some of you are watching TV. Some of you are listening to radio. Some of you are listening to radio sermons. Some of you are listening to CDs. And I'll tell you what, there's just a whole lot of junk out there. There's just a whole lot of stuff. 
And a lot of the stuff, it really comes across positive. And I hear it and I say, boy, I like that. I read that and I say, I like that. But it's not biblical. Get your spiritual mind on. Get your biblical, theological mind in tune. Discern that which is, put it to the test. Put what I say to the test. Test me by the word of God. No man has a corner on the truth. God has his checks and balances. Once the New Testament was completed in 100 AD, in my understanding, there's no longer a need for foundational gifts or temporary gifts because now we have the completed word of God. And so everything's got to be tested and examined by the authority of the word of God. That's why you've got to learn to think biblically and think theologically. So that when you read something, I, 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 I see it every week. Every week I see something, somebody will send me something, like this, like, what do you, I just love, what do you think, garbage? I don't say that because I don't want to offend, so I say it in another way. It's just not true. It's just not biblical. Let me tell you why. I'd really like to go to town on this, but they're in the nursery. <laughs> so he says, hold fast that which is good. Counterfeit truth must be rejected. And in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. There it is. Now that's your relationship to the ministers, the members, the master, the message. You got it? It's all there, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, another message could be on the conclusion. Because he brings it all together, verse 23, sanctification. Verse 24, the faithfulness of God. Verse 25, need for mutual prayer. Uh, need for loving fellowship. Verse 26, Importance of being reminded of the word of God, verse 27, and above all, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bill Gaither wrote it 40 years ago. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the spirit, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as I travel the sod all. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Wrote that song on Easter morning. Couple in the church, little church, church of God out in Anderson, Indiana was in a horrific accident, said the man's not gonna live. The church went to prayer. They prayed through the night, Friday, Saturday. Pastor came in, looked exhausted, Easter Sunday morning, the church was down. He said, we've got a word of hope. We think he's gonna make it. That was the last call. The church broke into a hallelujah time of praise. Bill and Gloria Gaither went home, sat down at the piano. Gloria was in cooking the dinner. And he just started singing out loud. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. She came and sat beside him. She wrote a few other words. And he looked at her and he said this. That if tragedy hit their family, the members would probably do the same for what they did for this family. Meals were brought in. Kids were watched for. People visited. People prayed. You've experienced it. Then he says this, not because we were worthy or adherent or any special treatment or indispensable, but just because we were part of the family of God. Gloria said, as I started dinner, Bill sat down at the panel. It wasn't long before the magnetic of the chorus Bill was singing drew me from the kitchen to the panel. We finished the song that was to feed us better than any other food that day. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Two things, we're not going to even close with music. I've preached too long. Number one, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never been born again, oh man, join the family. Just trust Christ as your savior. Don't leave here today with any fear of going to hell and judgment someday. Trust Christ, would you do that?
Just in your simple, I understand there were 40 last week that made some kind of outward profession. Praise God. But it comes down to you, the individual you. Teenager, young person, mom, dad, grandparent, trust Christ. Come into this wonderful family. And if you're part of the family of God, just review in your mind how you are as a member. What if every member of Osterville were just like you? Would you stand? I'm going to pray.